You're listening to Hooked on Creek, a podcast celebrating the music, history, and fans of the legendary jam band Max Creek. I am your host, Corey Johnson, and you are listening to episode 28. Thank you for tuning in to episode 28 of Hooked on Creek. This is a very special episode because it features a conversation with Amy Gudusky. Amy was a vocalist in Max Creek from 1976 to 1983 and was known as Amy Barefoot Fasano at that time. In this episode, Amy shares her memories of joining Max Creek and describes what it was like singing, recording, and touring with the band. Amy also talks about her favorite songs that she performed with the band and the positive impact Max Creek has had in her life. I had a great conversation with Amy, and I'm really excited to share it with you. But stick around, because this episode concludes with a selection of Max Creek live performances featuring Amy's beautiful vocals. In the episode show notes, you can find direct links to stream or download the music featured in this episode or simply head over to hookedoncreek.com. And while you're there, click the contact link and let me know what you think. I would love to hear from you. I'm always looking for recommendations on topics to cover, people to interview, or Max Creek shows to feature. You can also join discussions about the podcast by following Hooked on Creek on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just search for Hooked on Creek to get connected. All right, now let's get started. Amy Gudusky, welcome to Hooked on Creek. Thank you, Corey. I'm really glad to be here. Amy, you joined Max Creek in 1976, and you were a vocalist in the band through 1983. But before joining the band, do you remember the first time you heard or saw Max Creek? I'm curious how you were first exposed to their music. Well, I was working as a waitress at Mad Murphy's, which was sort of a... um a notorious bar in downtown Hartford in the upstairs cafe. And every Thursday night, Max Creek was the band. And so when I worked, I heard the band and I liked them. They were one of a number of bands that had regular weekend or weeknight gigs at Mad Murphy's along with High Times and Fountainhead and Storm and Norman and Susie and various other acts of the era. And that was where I first heard Max Creek. How old were you at that time? 18. So you're 18 years old, you're working at Mad Murphy's, and there's this band coming in pretty regularly called Max Creek. Did you enjoy their music? Was it something that that you liked listening to? I really liked them a lot. And um, they were... um, it was interesting because uh, they had a reputation uh, for bringing in an audience that didn't drink and didn't tip, but I really liked the music. Okay. So how did you first get introduced to the band then? Well... Every time I tell this story, I feel like somebody out there is going to say, she's making it up, but this is how it happened. You know, I I certainly was exposed to the band, like just sort of on a peripheral level by, you know, bringing them drinks and, you know, ginger ales in John Ryder's case. And um, one night I was um, 
cleaning up the ashtrays in the bathroom, except that really I wasn't cleaning the ashtrays at all. I was singing because the bathrooms, in addition to having the best graffiti I've ever seen, had perfect reverb. They had cathedral ceilings, and it was really fun to sing in there. And I was singing one of the songs that they had actually performed that night, Dust on My Saddle. And when I came out of the bathroom with the still filthy ashtrays in my hands, Mark Mercier asked me if I would be interested in singing with the band. And I said yes. Wow. So when he asked you and you you said yes, was it a hard sell to bring a female vocalist into the band? Or is that something that you think they were already thinking about? Well, I know that that Mark had been thinking about this for a long while. Um, He was tired of singing the high harmonies, and he um, had been uh, sort of scheming about it. And many years later, when I left the band, I found out that the whole thing had been conducted surreptitiously while John Ryder was on vacation. Mark asked me without his knowledge and certainly without his permission. And um, so Mark invited me to his apartment on Warrington Avenue in Hartford, and uh, I met the sound man, John Archer, and Mark rehearsed me through a couple of songs and presented me to the full band at the next formal rehearsal. And he had um, arrived at some songs that he um, taught me the harmonies to and made some arrangements of that he wanted the band to do. And uh, so, as I said, years later, I found out that uh, this was um, not something that was okay with John Ryder. And I I don't think that he is still forgiven Mark for hiring me. (laughs) Okay. Well, you must have done a good job, right? Because you stuck around for a while. I did stick around for a while. (laughs) Yeah. Were you nervous when you got that uh, invitation to meet the rest of the band and and start to perform? Yeah, I was, um, I I stayed um, petrified for the entire seven years. (laughs) How did you become known as Amy Barefoot? Oh, well, so uh, my first gig was in Bushnell Park. And I uh, and it was an outdoor concert. It was put on by uh, by Peace Train, which was a uh, a local organization that did like live concerts and all sorts of musical events all over the city. And so it was an outdoor gig, and it was my debut. And I had rehearsed with the band by that time, but it came to the point where I was going to come up and be introduced. And I got on stage and I sang Big Boat and Bob said, here's our new singer. And he realized he didn't know my last name and I didn't have any shoes on. So he just said, Amy Barefoot, and it stuck. (laughs) That's great. I love that story. point in time when you're 18 years old did you think you wanted to be a singer did you imagine yourself someday joining a band 
The fact is that in the back of my mind, you know, I I wanted to distinguish myself somehow in life, you know, whether it was as like a, an Olympic equestrian or a, a figure skater or a uh, an actor or something like that. But how it panned out was something that I could never, I don't think, have predicted. And um, even though... I survived my adolescence by locking myself in my room and singing along with my Joni Mitchell records. I never dreamed that I had really any sort of defining talent in that area. And Max Creek was my uh, my ticket out of lowly Bloomfield, Connecticut, and my um, uh, my avenue, I guess, to the sort of notoriety that I dreamed of but never thought was possible. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, what did your parents and family think when you told them that you're going to be part of a band? Well, <laughs> they were uh, they were not particularly pleased. Long afterward, I think when we started, you know, touring and making records, and it looked as if we might have some measure of success, I think they revised their attitudes. But in the beginning, they were reasonably opposed to it. But neither one of my parents was really watching the store too closely at that point. I had moved out of the house at that point in time. And my mother's part of the family, my mother's stepfather and two half-brothers had moved to Arizona. So they weren't really in proximity to my uh little step stool into a, a brush with fame. But my dad continued to live locally and occasionally he would bring a group of friends out to hear us. And I think in his way, he was proud of me eventually. At this point in time, were you familiar with the Grateful Dead's music and to what extent were you a Grateful Dead fan? Because I know Max Creek is often compared to the Grateful Dead for better or worse. I'm curious, was that part of the music you were listening to on your own? I wasn't listening to it on my own. In fact, um, somebody gave me a copy of Europe 72 when I was about 14 or 15, and I didn't like it. But um, when I got into the band, I liked actually the Max Creek versions of the Grateful Dead tunes that they played better than the Dead's versions. I thought our vocals were better. I thought our arrangements were better. I liked our jams better. And the Grateful Dead became sort of the the backing soundtrack and the pleasant uh, music that brought back many, many associations and good memories uh, from that era. And that's how it's remained. Did fans compare you to Donna Jean Godshaw from The Grateful Dead at all? All the time. What did that feel like? I didn't like it. You know, I, I would like to think that I sound like myself, and I would sort of like to think that I got hired to sing in the band not because we were trying to emulate the dead, but people in the audience didn't necessarily see it that way. And I'm sure that they thought that they were paying me a compliment, but I didn't really like Donna Godshaw's singing and, um, and still don't, you know, if I were compared to anybody, I, I wish it were, you know, other singers of the era. Mm-hmm. Well, we talked a little bit about Mark and John. What were your first impressions of Scott? <laughs> 
my first impression of Scott was that he was a phenomenal musician and really, really talented. I have always really loved his writing as a musician. I have really enjoyed his lyrics. He was closest to me in age in the band. And so we were close for that reason. And I admired him. Mm -hmm. What about Bob Goslin? Did you get a chance to, to strike a friendship up with him? Yes, Bob and I continue to be friends to this day. We have a lot in common. We had a wonderful working relationship when we were both playing together, and he and I have kept in closer touch really than any of the other members. So, Amy, what did it feel like to be on stage with Max Creek at that era of the band? I mean, what were the crowds like? What were you feeling when you were standing next to those players and, and performing this music? I was um, way out of my league. All of these guys were classically trained. Mark and John have degrees from heart. They were both music teachers. Scott, I think, got into but didn't go to Berkeley. Bob was a classically trained concert snare player. I can't, I still can't read music. I didn't know what I was doing. I have a reasonably decent ear, and I was absolutely out of my mind wondering if I was just uh, 15 seconds ahead of getting fired. It was scary. It was thrilling. It was like having a wonderful secret. I remember when we, um, when I had been in the band about a year, we all made the decision conjointly to quit our day jobs and we got an agent and we started to play full time as our primary means of employment. And at that point, you know, when we were touring beyond sort of the Connecticut and Western Massachusetts area, we started going out to different towns and different cities. And I remember walking around like in the day period before we were going on to play, like I'd, I'd be in whatever place we were, you know, Portland, Maine or, you know, Syracuse, New York. And I'd be walking around and thinking like, I have a secret. I am the singer in the band. And it was a really, really glorious feeling. The audience was, as it is now, really, really devoted. We did have some experiences. We, we had an agent that, that sent us to some places that were questionable where we didn't really have a following and they weren't prepared for the type of music that we played. There was one, one gig that we had in um, Niagara, New York, and it actually had a chicken wire screen and people threw things just like in the Blues Brothers and the night after we played there the bar burned to the ground <laughs> so that was that was one of the sort of the like the adverse experiences that we had but by and large we had a, just a terrific reception among the audience members even back then there was a following of considerable size and dimension and 
true devotion. And we had a newsletter that John Archer wrote that back then, you know, was sent to people by snail mail and the people to whom it was sent numbered in the hundreds even then. Wow. So while you were in the band, you performed some incredible covers by Bonnie Raitt, Fleetwood Mac, Joni Mitchell, Little Feet, among others. Did you pick the songs you wanted to cover or did other members of the band recommend them to you? Both, both. I I had probably the primary say, you know, I brought some songs to the band that I wanted to do that um, we tried and they didn't necessarily succeed. There were a couple of Linda Ronstad tunes that we did very briefly. Uh, another couple of tunes that I remember trying out that didn't go over so well, but primarily I would bring the stuff that I wanted to do to the band, but also Mark had some suggestions for me. He, um, he was the one who found the song, thought I heard my baby calling which I did for a long time, and it became sort of a, a trademark uh, as a song that I really, really love to perform. And I understand you actually wrote a couple songs, too, that were performed by Max Creek. Which songs were those? I wrote a few. Um, I wrote Water Woman. I wrote a song called I Told You So. And I wrote a song that actually made it onto the live album, Drink the Stars, called Dead Cat, which I understand people are uh, still interested in asking the band to play today. And of course, they don't because I'm not there to sing it. And I don't think anybody, I, I don't think any of the um, the drummers that succeeded Bob actually ever played it. When you think back, what were some of your favorite songs to perform with the band? Well, the songs that that I sang solo, I really, really loved them. You know, I, I never picked a song that I didn't like. So I really, really loved High Flying Bird. Really, really loved Thought I Heard My Baby Calling. My all-time favorite Max Creek song is The Field. I could listen to that all day, every day. Uh, there's a song of Scott's that he performed very, very briefly. It, it just never got picked up by the band, but it was called No Deposit, No Return. I still remember be that as being like a, just a terrific, terrific song. I love Emerald Eyes. I like Devil's Heart, Rainbow, Gypsy Blue. There, there are so many of them. I really loved the band's originals, even the ones that I didn't sing on. Mm -hmm. Do you remember when Rob Freed joined the band in 1979? How did his addition to the band change the dynamic of the music? Well, Rob delivered to the band uh, just an incredible depth of sound. It was really, really beautiful to have percussion on the stage it would it relieved me of the responsibility of playing shaker and tambourine which i was never very good at anyway and it added a dimension to the band that was 
very rich, very full, just delightful. Uh, in terms of what was happening on the stage, Rob's equipment took up a lot of space, which meant that not everybody had as much of a place to stand and put their equipment. And in those days, we had a bread truck called Big Orange and uh, everything fit in the truck and the truck was filled to capacity. It was 26 feet long and it was huge. And we it crammed it to the teeth with sound equipment. And many of the stages that we wound up playing on left you with a postage stamp sized square to do your performance on. And Rob's equipment contributed to that. <laughs> but it was great to have him there. Amy, while you were with the band, Max Creek released, I think, three albums, one in 1977, 1980, and 1982. Do you have any specific memories about the process of releasing those albums that, that you want to share? Lots. So the first album, actually, I used my life savings to fund. I paid for the studio time with all of the money that I had saved up waitressing. And um, it was really, really an honor to contribute to the band in that manner. It was daunting and exciting and really, really cool to be in the studio. And it was a, a huge education. One, one of the really great things that Max Creek and my experience in the band gave me was some street cred, you know, just having had the experience. And when we were in the studio, I learned an awful lot more about sound, sound equipment, recording, how it was done. And that broadened my horizons considerably. I really, really loved that experience. The second album, Rainbow, I really, really liked the material that was on that album. I was really, really happy to be a part of it. And the live album, I was exceptionally happy about because there was an original song that I wrote on it. And um, all of the recording experiences were really illuminating. All of them were really difficult. We were under a lot of time pressure because studio time costs money and we didn't have a lot of it. We had a great recording engineer, Ronnie Scalise, who has since died. And he did uh, just an astonishingly wonderful job mastering the albums with John Ryder and Scott working on it as well. And it's, it's astounding to me today that I'm immortalized on vinyl. Mm-hmm. Amy, why did you leave the band in 1983? By 1983, it had become really clear that we weren't going to probably achieve the kind of Rolling Stones, Fleetwood Mac sort of fame that I think we all craved and which I think the band deserved. We weren't making very much money. We had established a connection with a bar owner in Rochester, New York, named John Ross. He was called Burdock, colloquially, and he was going to um, sort of try to get us to California and acquire a recording contract for us. And he was sort of fueling the next step. And in 1983... He committed suicide. And 
sort of the the momentum fell out of the band for the next step forward and we were sort of on the treadmill to oblivion but on a personal level my reason for leaving the band was that my insides didn't match my outsides i uh was feeling still that i was not the singer that i ought to be and I was feeling that the adulation and respect and praise that I was getting from the audience was not deserved. And I thought that it was probably the best thing for me to leave the band. Okay. So 2021 is the 50th anniversary of Max Creek. What do you think is so special about this band and their music that has kept them going for this long? I think that Max Creek has always I, it attached itself uh, to people who wanted to belong somewhere, me included. And it has been a receptive environment, uh, like the Island of the Misfit Toys, for all of us, whether it's because you love the music, whether it's because you are as a member of the audience or a member of the band, a part of something that is greater than the sum of its parts. It's an extraordinary entity. It offers belonging. It offers unity. It offers absolutely incomparable musicianship. It's an energetic enterprise that surpasses really description. Yeah. I love this band, and I've never even seen him perform. It's amazing. <laughs> wow, that that just astonishes me that you've never never seen them live and really, really like the dead. Max Creek is a live concert not to be missed. And I really hope that if there is a 50th anniversary gig, if it's allowed and, and they perform one, that you'll go. <laughs> yeah. This has been a lot of fun. Are there any final thoughts you want to share? The only thing that I'd really, really like to add is that the band changed my life in a really extraordinary way. And I am so, so grateful that I had that experience. I just absolutely, it has been the defining era of my life. And everything that I took away from that band, everything that I learned there has informed and enriched the rest of my life. And I am so thankful to all of the members for indulging me, for teaching me, for helping me, and for the education that I got in real life, down and dirty stuff in the music business and in performance. And it helped me everywhere. So I just, I hope that they hear this and, and know that I feel that way. All right. Amy Gudowski, thank you for joining me on Hooked on Creek. Thank you so much, Corey, for having me. I really, really appreciate the opportunity. 
It was a huge honor getting the opportunity to talk with Amy Godusky, and I really hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation. But don't go anywhere, because now I have some sweet Max Creek tunes lined up featuring Amy on vocals. First up, you're going to hear High Flying Bird. That will be followed by Love Me Like a Man. And finally, Dead Cat. This is Max Creek performing live at Jonathan Swift's in Cambridge, Massachusetts on May 21st, 1983.
Thank you. This is Max Creek performing Love Me Like a Man at Kao's Pub in Portland, Maine on March 12, 1983.
Next up, this is Max Creek performing Dead Cat live at Tomb Atune in Springfield, Massachusetts on June 29, 1983. Bye. 
concludes episode 28 of Hooked on Creek. If you are curious, earlier in this episode, I featured clips of the following live Max Creek recordings. Angel from Montgomery, performed on February 19, 1978. Heat Wave, performed on February 23, 1983. Blue Letter, performed on September 4, 1983. Thought I Heard My Baby Calling, performed on July 31st. 1977, and Water Woman, performed on December 4th, 1981. You can get direct links to stream or download all the songs featured in this episode on the Hooked on Creek website. Just visit hookedoncreek.com, and while you're there, be sure to click the contact link and let me know what you think of this podcast. I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>